The reading for the day begins in verse 19. Acts 26. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being uh, the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. A few years back, so before I was in ministry, I was at a family party. Uh, I think it was at my in-law's house. And uh, I, I met a guy who was a, a relative of a relative of a friend of a neighbor of a, I don't know, somebody that was just there. Uh, he was a real nice guy. And we got to talking about life. And we were, as a family, kind of in a tough spot financially. Uh, and he really knew the feeling. He, had, he was in a similar kind of situation. So I felt like we understood each other. But he told me about this exciting company uh, that he knew, and he knew about it, and he knew that they were hiring, in fact. And he was working there now, and it was going really great. And he said, you know, I should show up. They're actually having an open house next week, and, and I'll show you around. Okay. I'm, like, thinking, like, this could be a big breakthrough. We really could use this. So I went, and I even brought a friend, only to walk into a very high-pressure sales pitch on how I could change my life through selling life insurance to my friends and family, in the greatest multi-level marketing scheme of all time. I thought to myself, man, I really thought this guy cared, too. Uh, needless to say, this was not the good news that I was looking for at the time or what I really needed, and I got out as soon as I could. Uh, how many of you have ever been in sales? Not those kind of sales. You don't have to admit that kind of thing. That's fine. You know, you can sell Cutco or whatever door-to-door, -door, right? Um, or how about, even worse, how many of you have ever done fundraising, right? That's like, there's nothing worse than doing sales when you actually have nothing that you're selling. Like, that's really hard. Um, 
So after all these experiences and and having been on both ends of the equation, I feel like I've become a pretty hardened guy. I've been in sales. I've done some fundraising, so I'm not too easily deceived whether they call me or they show up at my door. Uh, Most salesmen never get to the sales pitch. Uh, Georgia gets a lot of telemarketing calls. I don't know why. They don't call my cell phone. They call hers. But she's got that nice feature where it says scam likely. And... um, the kids like to make me answer because I'll answer, and I, I practice different voices on them, and they go, oh, oh, you know, like this kind of thing, whatever, and just to mess with them. So salesmen and most charities are easily dismissed in the Franchetti household. Uh, it's a very rare event when somebody actually gets to the actual sales pitch. Um, almost nobody gets the chance to go in for the kill. And evangelism can certainly be like that, right? Uh, Paul knew that very well. I went back and was reading through it, and it seems like his last four public speeches uh, ended with him being cut short. Uh, this was true in Jerusalem when he tried to make that speech from the steps of the, uh, of the barracks, right? Uh, the crowd shouted him down. That was in chapter 22. The very next chapter, he had a hearing before the Sanhedrin, and that turned into a shouting match, too. Uh, His initial Roman hearing before Felix got cut short by Felix himself because it was getting bogged down in sort of hearsay arguments and there were lawyers involved and such. That was in chapter 24. And and his first hearing under Festus, that was mostly an argument over court procedure, that was the previous chapter to where we are now. So Paul's not had the chance to make a grand appeal, right? Uh, He hasn't had the chance to finish his argument in a public setting in quite a while. And for a man like Paul, who liked to talk, I think, uh, this has been, I think, a frustrating couple of years for him. And for once now, today, he he finally gets the chance to finish the argument, right? To, To close out strong. So far, Paul had been largely telling a story, his story, right? Uh, not a ton of controversy in that, I guess, right? Everyone's been listening very politely, because even if you don't believe this whole fantastic story of the Damascus Road, uh, the story is at least interesting. It's entertaining, right? Uh, But his entire argument behind all of this has has revolved around hope. We've been talking about that, and and how in in the beginning of this speech, he spoke about how he used to be an enemy of hope. And then he talked last week, we saw about how he was kicking against hope and resisting it for a long time. And today, he gets slightly crazy, at least in Festus's opinion. Uh, he's going to talk about how hope ultimately changed him, and moreover, how that same hope can change you. Now, this is the exact part of evangelism, I think, where most of us are the least comfortable with the whole process. We started this study in Acts quite a while ago at this point, and I did this in the first place because I knew this was a struggle for many people in the church. And it's also a part of why we did this congregational survey earlier this year. It was trying to help us to think about evangelism, why we do or do not share the gospel or invite people to church. And I think this is why. I think this is the hard part. It's one thing to debate doctrine with people. Some of us don't mind debating it's another thing to talk about your personal faith journey, right? We can, we can do that a little more easily, too. But sharing the gospel in earnest eventually involves making an appeal. You're kind of making a sales pitch. You're pressing something. It means turning the question on the other person and asking them, what are you going to do with this hope that I have? You're putting it on them. And that's, like, super uncomfortable because it's forcing the issue. Those of you who have ever shared the gospel know that this is kind of the awkward part. It's like the high-pressure sales pitch. 
Uh, some of you were at the Bright Hope Gala on Tuesday, and uh, for those of you who were not, I, I highly recommend going to their f- Facebook page, look up the video, fast forward to Ryan Bomberger's speech. It was excellent. Uh, it, but it, it's a fundraiser, right? That's what the gala is for. And so there comes this awkward time at the end when they ask for money. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's why we were there. We understand that. It was just, you know, it's always just kind of awkward, like, okay, we just went from everybody's having a good time, and it's just like, yeah, and then we're going to talk about money, right? And it was fine. I, I have actually been to a fundraiser, a story for another time, where I didn't realize it was a fundraiser till I was already there for an hour. Like, that was super awkward and really rough. Uh, but this was not the case in this case. Uh, you know, Bright Hope... Their mission is wonderful, and there's so many great things happening, and we are proud to support them. And I was so inspired, I did up our giving, actually. Uh, But I still can't help but feel like it is that awkward moment of the sales pitch. What what John Merwarth, I don't envy him this job, the executive director, goes up there and does what he calls the big ask, right? I didn't envy him, because again, it's almost like... You experience this even as a parent. I have this with my kids. My kids will want to ask for something, and they're all kind of conspiring. And you can hear them whispering in the other room about this kind of thing. And then sometimes they'll nominate one of them (laughs) to come in and ask me on their behalf for whatever. It could be candy, you know, dessert, a a movie, whatever it is, right? And no one wants that job. It's hard to close the sale. You have to be kind of crazy to do it, and that's why whoever does get nominated comes in and kind of ends up just kind of mumbling the request to me, and I usually have to ask them to repeat it several times before they actually spit it out in such a way that I can hear it and give them an answer. And, and this happens because with Daddy, everything feels like a big ask. That's ask with a K in case anybody can't hear me in the recording or anything. <laughs> no one likes to make the big ask of Daddy. And sadly, mommy's even worse. That's why they come to me, right? (laughs) So given that, how does Paul close out his sales pitch? If you can get this far in your gospel presentation, what would you say? You've already explained how you came to Christ, or maybe more accurately, how Christ came to you, right? How do you transition into telling someone that they should do likewise? Or to put it another way, how do you go from description to prescription? Or from the indicative to the imperative for you English majors out there. Or maybe for the rest of us, from explanation to application. I I find it's a similar challenge when writing a sermon. Uh, The analysis is relatively easy most of the time, but getting scripture to change you in the pews, you as individuals to change your behavior, that's a challenge. That's a tricky part. Making it matter to you all. How do you do that? Well, Paul starts first by saying how this hope changed him. Uh, Not just on the Damascus Road, it obviously changed his plans in the moment, right? Uh, But it also changed his path in the following years that came. And he explains how hope had been offensive to him, right? He, He told us how hope tracked him down in the form of Jesus, who eventually tackled him there. But now he explains how this hope changed his entire path in life. He does that in the early portion here, 19 to 21. He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. So there's this emphasis here that what really changed was his obedience. 
Paul says he obeyed the heavenly vision, and he went on to preach to anyone who would listen that they too must obey the gospel. Now, in some ways, in most churches, it seems like that's a funny way to put it, uh, because we tend to think of the gospel as something we need to believe primarily, and that's how it often is worded in scripture, but Paul says here that he obeyed the vision. Uh, He's implying that there was already an internal change that had happened. Uh, In other words, that he was no longer kicking against the goads. He had officially surrendered, and this changed his behavior. And you can see that in how he orders things in verse 20 there. Uh, The obedience he's pressing on others is this, to repent and then to do deeds that reflect that repentance. So obedience is a reaction to and a byproduct of the repentance. You don't obey your way into the kingdom of God. You surrender to the king and then you start acting like a subject. Repentance first, then obedience. Because obedience without true repentance is just legalism. And that's what the Pharisees were so good at. That's why Paul was very familiar with this line of thinking. But repentance without obedience is probably not real. So you need both, but the order is important because the source of the obedience is the repentance. So this message sort of flipped Paul's former worldview upside down. Jesus is alive And he was telling him that all of his hard work and all of his efforts were useless. They were just kicking against the goads. He needed to repent, and then maybe his obedience would start to make sense. Now, this message was anathema to many or even most Jews because they thought that they were born into a right relationship with God by virtue of their culture and their history and their bloodline and their customs. And Paul comes along and says, no, you all need to repent just like I did. You need to surrender to God and then live your life like you meant it. And this, Paul says, is why the Jews have been trying to kill him. This is why the Jews hate me, because I'm telling them, I'm calling them as God's people to start acting like God's people, to turn in true repentance and obedience. It's the same message that I bring to the Gentiles. And my countrymen have never really gotten over that. Now, at this point, nobody's stopping Paul, so he continues. Verse 22, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul says he has this divine help every day since that Damascus Road incident that God has been helping me as I witness to Jews and Gentiles alike. And again, here he is in custody, right? He's in shackles in front of his mostly Roman, these are Roman Gentile overlords that he is surrounded by, other than Agrippa, who's the nominal Jew in the room. And, and he says, the message he's proclaiming, look, it's not entirely a new message. I'm only proclaiming what Moses and the prophets, which is shorthand for the entire Old Testament, I'm only telling you what they already said, that the Christ would suffer, die, and be raised up. He is emphasizing that this is a long-standing Jewish hope dating back to the very beginning, but he says the purpose of the story was to reach not just Jews, but Gentiles too. That the resurrection hope that was promised in the Old Testament came true in Jesus and that that hope is for everybody. It's not just a Jewish fairy tale, it's for you guys too. 
The same hope that, that I once hated, that I resisted for years, it's not just a bit of obscure Jewish theology, it's the hope of the world, and God is helping me get the word out. Now, again, these are bold claims by a prisoner. He is taking an obscure point of Jewish theology and making it about everybody. He's making this argument that this issue, this issue of the resurrection, it matters to you Romans too. It's not just a Jewish question. If it's true, then it has bearing on everyone in this room. Paul's saying, I'm here by God's help to bring this resurrection hope to you. I'm bringing the light to you. Jesus is bringing the light to you guys. Now, in a sense, that may not come across as all that bold. It's not that different from what we've heard Paul say in the past, but Paul's audacity is made clear by Festus's response to this. It says, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus can't help himself at some point. This is all too much. And I think this is the response you would hear from probably most well-to-do, respectable Romans and many self-respecting Americans, for that matter. You give them the gospel message and they say, this is crazy and you must be crazy for believing it. Now, on the surface, Festus's comment almost seems to be a self-contradictory comment, but I think we all know what he means by it uh, because we all know that some of the world's greatest geniuses are also insane. Uh, This is a common thread among musicians, for instance. Uh, The greatest composers in history are typically neither mentally or emotionally stable. And it's also true of many of the great rock bands in our generation. I mean, the drugs don't help either, but, you know, like, genius comes with craze a little bit. Painters can be like that, too. Not every artist is as chill as Bob Ross, right? And I think that's why art snobs don't appreciate him, because he's not dark and brooding enough. Art critics love the Van Goghs of the world. The guy who cuts his ear off and sends it to an ex-girlfriend. Like, that's genius right there. And then paints himself like that, you know? I actually like Van Gogh, mostly, but... And then, you know, I mean, even science geniuses, right? I mean, you know, the stereotype is anybody who can really understand very complicated science must not have much time for a real social life, right? Um, So creative geniuses, they're weird people. And we tend to assume that the most educated people are not necessarily the most stable because school makes you crazy, amen? I know some of you kids and parents feel that way. Come on now. I'm waiting for applause. Um, (laughs) So Festus is not accusing Paul of being stupid here because he's clearly not just some ignorant boob. He's actually thinking Paul's closer to the Van Gogh wing of crazy. Festus can understand Paul as a persecuted religious minority. He actually finds Paul a very sympathetic character, I think. He he thinks of Paul as being sort of misunderstood, unfairly attacked by, by his enemies. But when Paul says, look, I'm here today with God's help to proclaim hope to you, that sounds straight up delusional. And Festus is thinking, like, Paul, you're here to defend yourself. I don't know if you remember that. It says right here in verse 24, you're saying these things in your defense. But your defense sounds an awful lot like you think you're on offense right now. And like you're in salesman road and you're trying to convert the judge. 
And that would be shocking in any courtroom setting. Uh, those of you who've been paying attention, you know there's been multiple cases in recent years where some Christian or a Christian-owned business uh, has been sued and taken to federal court over issues of religious freedom, right? How often do you think the Christians in those cases have tried to convince the judge, not that the law was on their side, but that they have good news of hope for the judge himself? How often does that happen? Can you even imagine such a thing? Just stopping in the midst of your legal argument to evangelize the judge and the jury and the people in the gallery while you're at it. They would come across as weird, right? And, And frankly, inappropriate, wouldn't it? to our American mindset. But that's where Paul is headed. He's making a gospel sales pitch directly at the judges in the room, and Festus can't believe the audacity of it. You're on trial, Paul. Not us. You're the one in trouble here. We're trying to help. And frankly, you're only going to get yourself in worse trouble if you keep talking like this, because I can tell you right now, this ain't going to fly in Nero's courtroom when you get to Rome. Now, I could even think of this as, as Festus basically inviting Paul to plead insanity. Paul, just say you're confused and you were really tired and you didn't know what you were saying the other day and we'll let you go. I mean, look, you're, you're a smart guy, probably too smart for your own good. You're not talking sense. This hope you speak of, it's insane. This is crazy town. But Paul turns around and gets even more personal and more awkward. Verse 25, but Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Well, that's about as dangerously personal as Paul could get right now. I've said before, that this is, in my opinion, the hardest part of evangelism. It's even harder, I would think, as a prisoner. It's the one thing to explain. It's one thing to explain the gospel basics to 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 anybody, right? That that Jesus died for your sins and was raised again and he ascended into heaven, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All that's good stuff that we recite in the Nicene Creed every week, right? And I would say even many unbelieving Americans can articulate the bare bones of that part of the gospel story, that Jesus died for your sins and, and that he rose again. They know those claims. And Agrippa certainly knows the basics, because as Paul says, none of this was done in a corner. Our faith is a public faith. There were hundreds of witnesses to these events. Lots of people were there when Jesus died. Lots of people, hundreds, saw him after he was raised. Paul said, heck, heck, Agrippa, your family's fingerprints are all over this story anyway. You already know this stuff. You can verify these events by talking to any number of people, not just me. The bigger point is this. Do you believe it, and what are you going to do about it? Because at some point you have to get personal. You have to make the big ask. Do you believe in this hope? Now that's a gutsy thing for Paul to ask Agrippa. Because again, Agrippa is a Herodian. These guys are no friends to Christians. They never have been. 
And yet Paul boldly asks this scandalous, presently incestuous man if he believes what the prophet said, and then he says, I think you do. That kind of talk can get you killed. I don't really know why Paul goes so far. Seems like he could have stopped halfway. Because the Herod family, remember, they're not actually Jewish by blood. They're actually Edomites. And historically, they were also Sadducees. They rejected the prophets. What makes him think Agrippa would believe them? Now, it's possible that maybe Paul has heard rumors that this guy is something of a seeker. That Agrippa is a mess, yes. But it kind of seems like maybe Agrippa knows that. And maybe he's been wondering if the family has been doing this whole thing wrong for a long time. And maybe he suspects that his materialistic lifestyle is empty and meaningless. It's possible because nobody knows the emptiness of sin better than somebody who's living in it. So Paul appeals to Agrippa to give in. He's making the big ask. He's urging him to surrender to the same hope that he did. Believe the prophets. Believe the evidence. If none of this was done in secret, then Agrippa must know full well that the word on the street is that something funny happened with this Jesus character. The tomb really was empty. He really was seen alive. Like, the word is on the street. And if he's alive, then maybe the prophets were right. And maybe all of this makes sense after all. So in, in, in a sense, Paul's going for the kill. He's going for the throat. He's challenging Agrippa to make this thing personal. This is life and death. It is here and now. And for a moment, just a moment, Agrippa seems to waver. And he nearly breaks. It says, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? This is one of these verses that's very hard to translate perfectly. If you look in your ESV, there's a footnote saying you could translate this as, in a short time, you would persuade me to act like a Christian. Many of you who were raised on King James know it says, uh, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. The NIV translates it this way, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Young's literal translation says, in a little thou dost persuade me to become a Christian. New American Standard says, in a short time you are going to persuade me to make a Christian of myself. That's a lot of variation, admittedly. And I think it reflects the ambiguity of Agrippa's words here. It's not actually a question in the original Greek. That would have been more clear. They do have a, something of a question mark in Greek. Uh, so technically it's a statement, but he states it in such a way that it begs to be read like a question. And I think what we are witnessing here in reality is a broken man. He's a child of a broken family, a sinful, rebellious, scandalous, and wicked man. And I think he nearly breaks. Paul's audacity doesn't offend him. It actually nearly gets through. 
Who is the gospel good news for? Sinners. Not the wise of the world, right? Not the powerful, not the proud, not the self-righteous, certainly. Who is the gospel for? Who is it good news for? Sinners. And Agrippa was a sinner. And the whole empire knew it. There was no more public sinner, perhaps, than Agrippa at this point in time. So the gospel's aimed at him. Agrippa, in fact, I would put it this way, is more desperate than Festus. That's the difference here. And Agrippa sounds almost like he wants to grab the lifeline that Paul is offering. This hope may be crazy, but it doesn't sound half bad either. And in a sense, nothing could be more surprising to hear out of Agrippa at this point, because he could have easily snapped at this point for Paul being so presumptuous. Or like Festus, he could have been dismissive and said, Paul, you're crazy. But I believe what you're seeing here is that the Holy Spirit has been needling Agrippa, goading him just like he had done to Paul. And you can almost read in Agrippa's statement the underlying question, is this hope really for me too? I think Agrippa's wrestling here. Paul's inviting him to stop kicking and embrace the hope. And Agrippa, the latest Herod, I think is on the cusp of doing so. He's on the border of the kingdom looking in and wondering if he's really allowed And I think part of what Agrippa is worried about is the same thing that makes us skeptical of telemarketers and QVC infomercials and life insurance pyramid schemes. Because I think he's thinking to himself, it can't really be that easy, Paul. Look, I've been raised, everybody knows, in Caesar's house. I've lived my life like an eternal frat boy. My family is trashy and corrupt as they come. I've been living with my sister for several years. Hope? That's a bit of a foreign concept, Paul. And yet you say, I can simply grab this hope right now, today, no preconditions. Just give in and believe. It can't be that easy, Paul. I'm a lost cause. I can't begin to clean up my mess. Nothing's this easy. You're really going to talk me into the kingdom in the course of one speech? Can this hope erase my family record? Can it erase my decades of bad behavior? I don't know that I can believe that, Paul. Again, you're supposed to be defending yourself. You're putting me on the stand. What are you trying to do, Paul? You're really trying to make me a Christian. And Paul answers him with an unqualified yes. Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Beloved, I want you to hear Paul's heart for the lost here. He's not trying to change the culture here. This is not a political move by Paul. 
He's not evangelizing the king to fix society. He's not going after him because it would just be a big win, that this would be a prestigious thing if we could get this guy. Paul has a heart for Agrippa the man, this broken son of persecutors and heretics. Agrippa is a big sinner, so he needs a big savior. He needs Jesus, just like Paul did. And Paul has the peace that Agrippa is missing. Who is the gospel good news for? Sinners. They need Jesus. And Paul's got it. He wants everyone to have what he has. And if he can win you over in an afternoon, great. Otherwise, he'll happily evangelize you Felix style over dinner every night for two years. The important thing is that everyone should be as free as he is, says the man in chains. I think Paul throws that last line in almost for a laugh. This week I was reading Jeremiah Burroughs' book. He's a Puritan. He has a book called The The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's one of many books I've been starting and restarting for years now without ever finishing. But he says something, I think, in the second chapter that was kind of striking to me. He says that Christians should be the most content people in the world, but also the most unsatisfied. Meaning that if we have Christ, we have everything we need, and we can be sure that God is good, even if we have almost nothing in this world. But because we are in Christ, we also know that this world has nothing that can actually compare to what we have in him, and it can't fulfill us. So if we have abundance and wealth, and even if we have entire kingdoms, nothing in this world can possibly satisfy our hunger for him. So we should be content, yet never fully satisfied And that is a little of what Paul is indicating here. Paul is not an ascetic monk. I don't think he's into suffering for its own sake. You notice he doesn't wish physical chains on anyone. He doesn't think that this is virtuous in and of itself. He wants everyone, Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, Nero, you, me, everybody in that room, to have what he has. That's what he wants. That's the heart of evangelism. So with that, Paul closes his case. He's explained what he's doing here. He says basically it's God's fault. He's made the case for the hope of the gospel, and he has turned the question around on Agrippa and everybody else in the room, really. He says, this is for you. What are you going to do with it? He's living Jesus' promise that he would be a witness before kings, and he's made his very direct appeal. The sales pitch has been delivered, and so Agrippa decides, let's adjourn this meeting says, then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man's doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, I would submit, if we were reading this passage from an unbelieving perspective, this last verse would be the focus Because for all intents and purposes, this chapter kind of ends with the sense that Paul kind of screwed something up here. He had a get-out-of-jail-free card in his pocket that he didn't know about, and if he had just kept his mouth shut, he'd be heading home. And by all rights, he should be on his way to Philip's house for dinner tonight, but that idiot appealed to Caesar, so we're stuck. We have no choice but to hold him. 
Now, if we didn't believe Jesus' promise, this would be a very depressing scene, wouldn't it? It would be the definition of an unforced error, like getting into a multi-level marketing scheme, right? We could have just said no, and we didn't. And I confess, even now, I read that line, and I feel like it's kind of heartbreaking, isn't it? Because I think we all believe that God is going to use Paul as a prisoner, right? But part of me thinks, you know, God could easily use Paul as a free man too, right? And it feels like this is an avoidable mistake. And I think we often feel that way. You look back on life and you have a million regrets. I do. Why, why did I do that in that situation? Why did I say that in that other situation? Why did I buy that thing I bought? And you believe, as a matter of principle, that God uses your mistakes. We all affirm this, right? God is sovereign, right? We're all Calvinists here, I hope, or most of us, right? Um, but you still kind of believe it would be better if you could go back and undo the mistakes a little bit, right? If I could go back, I'd change it. So I read that final verse, and I kind of cringe a little, like, ooh, Paul, so close. But Paul's not worried. There was no mistake. He doesn't love the chains, don't get me wrong, but there's nowhere else he'd rather be. I think he's actually kind of having fun. His hope is so crazy that he actually sees a great opportunity here. He has a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to evangelize the last Herodian prince. That just doesn't happen every day. And so he goes out there and he leaves it all on the table. Now, we don't know what Agrippa did with this. It's easy to assume nothing happened at that point. But it's also obvious to me that neither he nor Festus are anti-Paul. They don't walk out angry or frustrated or, or incensed at his audacity, right? In fact, despite Paul's audacity, they're more convinced than ever that actually this guy's innocent. And interestingly, it's Agrippa, the one who was most directly confronted, who expresses actual remorse about the whole situation at the end. It's him. He's the, the latest Herod, Agrippa who Paul confronted so directly, he wishes Paul could be set free. Now, I, I can't stand here and say for sure whether Agrippa or Festus or Bernice ever came to faith. I don't know. Festus disappears from the historic records shortly after the Jewish revolt began. Agrippa lived many more years, and he actually fought for Rome against his own subjects in that war. He eventually became close to the historian Josephus, and he died about 40 years after this scene. He died childless. He was the last Herod to rule anything, the last of the dynasty. But I can't help but wonder, what did he do with this challenge? What did he do with this insane hope that Paul was offering? We won't know till we're in glory. But once again, I, I can't help but wonder about a little detail here. I wonder how we have a record of a private chat between Festus and Agrippa. Where did Luke get the details for verses 31 and 32? Someone was able to tell him. Was it Agrippa himself? Who knows? I only say this to observe. I think we'll be surprised at some of the people that we'll meet in glory but Agrippa and most of the people in that room 
would never have heard the gospel of hope unless Paul was willing to confront him and do something crazy. To make the big ask, to be out of his mind for the gospel and to press them to make a decision. And that makes him sound crazy. And the gospel does sound crazy. The resurrection sounds insane. Our hope is too good to be true, except it is. As Paul says, it is true and rational. The resurrection is not wishful thinking. It was a very public event. It's the only thing that actually fits all the evidence, and it's the only hope we have. It is God's desire, and it is therefore Paul's longing that everyone should believe and obey this hope. He wants all men everywhere to have the same hope that he has, this same insane, crazy hope. But you'll never get there unless you make it personal. And that's why he confronted Agrippa so directly. That's the kind of high-pressure sales approach that makes everyone uncomfortable. (laughs) But it might be what somebody needs to hear it. Paul had two years with Felix. He has about 20 minutes with Agrippa, and he takes full advantage of it. He didn't waste time. Are you willing to do that with your friends and relatives and neighbors and co-workers and people that you just pass and meet in passing? Are you willing to be out of your mind for this hope? And if not, how do we expect the gospel to change our families? or our workplace, or our city, or this country, or this church? Do you believe the prophets? Do you have this hope? Questions worth asking yourself. Paul wasn't shy about the gospel, and he didn't mind looking crazy for it. Maybe we could learn a thing or two from him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the hope of the gospel, Lord. We thank you that even though it is seemingly crazy, Lord, Lord, it is rational and true. It wasn't done in a corner. You didn't do this with intent to hide it. The record is there. It's the only thing that fits the evidence. It's the only reason why people would die for this truth. Lord, we do thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that you really did raise Jesus up. We thank you that the tomb really was empty. And we pray that that hope would be so deeply ingrained on us, Lord, that we would be willing to be thought out of our minds because of our willingness to advocate for it and spread it and share it everywhere we can. Lord, may that be true of us this week and for the rest of our lives going forward, as it was for Paul. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.